Welcome to Conversations on Contemporary Worship. I'm Adam Perez. And I'm Glenn Stallsmith. Glenn and I are part of a team of researchers at the Divinity School at Duke University who study contemporary worship. If you're a worship leader, a pastor, or you teach others to lead congregations in worship, this podcast is for you. We're interested in the well-trod paths about contemporary worship, like music and technology, but also conversations that go much broader and deeper than that. On our podcast, we dive into cutting-edge scholarship on contemporary worship through conversations with leaders in the field, from ethnomusicologists to theologians and sociologists to historians. Our goal is to introduce you to a wide range of scholars and practitioners from whom we have something vital to learn about contemporary worship and the church. Our conversation today is with Dr. Tanya Riches, Senior Lecturer and Master's Program Director at Hillsong College in Sydney, Australia. Dr. Riches is here to talk with us about an edited volume called The Hillsong Movement Examined. She co-edited this book with Tom Wagner, and it's published by Paul Grave Macmillan. What I love about this book is that, as Dr. Riches says, it's a dinner party, uh, a spirited conversation between insiders and outsiders at Hillsong that covers a wide range of topics from the history of the congregation to social and ethical implications of its work, to its international ministry, and ultimately, perhaps even its future. What I really like about this conversation is Dr. Rich's own place within this movement that she's researching. Dr. Rich is a member of Hillsong. She came up through the worship leadership there. She's a songwriter. And yet she still critically examines the impact that this wide movement has had across the world. It's not unlike the conversation we had earlier with Dr. Glenn Packiam, who is an insider to the charismatic movement and is yet able to speak with a critical voice about that movement's impact across the world. Enjoy this conversation with someone who has a deep interest in the worship life of Christian congregations, which she comes to as a researcher, as a worship leader, and as a believer. Hi, Dr. Riches, and welcome to the show. We are so glad to have you. So in the foreword to the volume, I noticed Gerardo Marti's work really stands out as an important conversation partner. Uh, I mean, he wrote the foreword, so it makes sense. But the way he's framing the project, I think, is really helpful in in some ways. Can you say something about, um, yeah, why Marti in um, introducing this volume? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think it goes to the um, methodology of the volume, which is really bringing inside and outside of voices together. Um, And for a spirited conversation. And so I think, you know, Mm -hmm. the sociological critique of megachurches has been a really important part of that discussion. And I think as an insider, we really, I really wanted to grapple with that. And, and Mati has been a really important dialogue partner for us. So in, in me personally in my work. So I think, you know, having him to introduce the volume was really important, but at the same extent, it was, we were really trying to go for that intersection of more, um, empathetic outsiders mm-hmm. and critical insiders. And so I think, um, yeah, it was, it was just a joy that he could do the forward. <laughs> but I, I, afterwards I thought, oh, we need something that's a little bit more robust and that he can really like, you know, um, get involved in. So maybe that's to come. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, I just received from him uh, a translation of his, of an article he published in French on Hillsong and ecumenism. I don't know if you've you've read it. I haven't actually yeah. read the article no, yet, but yeah. um, but I think you know, f- for me also, you know, being a scholar of contemporary worship, what I one of the things that I think is a an, a real opportunity for dialogue is around you know that question uh, of like how mega churches expand our imagination about how interchurch intercommunities of faith yeah. dialogue happens and so uh, i think maybe we'll we'll just plan to have marty on an episode later to yes. Um, yes. to explore that conversation yeah. maybe we'll have you do give a response to uh to marty <laughs> do a foreword for marty's episode and uh, we can reciprocate oh, yeah, that I way do a forward for him. that would be so <laughs> lovely and i think you know that is really what my hope is that we're able to come to the table and have conversations because uh, i think you know when you remove the other from that conversation mm-hmm. um it, on either side it really can become um a, you know it really has its own character that devolves. And I think, you know, having both parties at the table to talk about, you know, megachurch and its responsibilities and the implications are 
I mean, that's a, that's a conversation I'd turn up for any day. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting you mentioned, uh, and I think this is helpful for the podcast audience in general, you mentioned the sociological critique or the critiques of megachurches in sociological and sociology of religion in particular. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in my experience, you know, it's it's not, it doesn't stop there. Um, you know, in liturgical studies, there's a lot of critique, not just of, of megachurches yeah. as a yeah. form, but yes. of, of the ways of worship that tend to accompany, um, you know, these, these other forms of churches gathering contemporary worship, you know, namely, um, or some forms of contemporary praise and worship. And um, this dynamic that you're bringing out about uh, uh, these sort of hospitable, uh, charitable outsiders with, you know, with these important and insightful academic lenses in conversation with sort of self-critical insiders is just a dynamic Mm -hmm. that I think is what really to me in the book is is remarkable because it's uh, in part Mm -hmm. because it's so hard to find... Um, those two parties on their own (laughs) and it sort of like feels like a mission that we're on at at Duke is like you know to be charitable readers and and participants also in some in our own ways Mm. uh, in these different kinds of liturgical practices Mm. while also having to try to play the other side but also like defend against the the uncharitable outside (laughs) you know and you play this game of like like well I get to critique them because I understand because I spend time with and like I, I get to channel that critique but you can't because you have like you visited one time and then you wrote a whole essay about it like that's not gonna pass muster here yeah well i mean and that's exactly it isn't it so like when i turned up to say for example the um north american academy of liturgy or nal Mm -hmm. you know i was the first person really that most people had ever talked to from hillsong and so i just remember being in this like reception with these you know liturgists who are all like great in the field and i'm standing there you know um in in this like new newbie kind of you know environment and and the conversations were just hilarious like you know they they didn't have instagrams and they thought it was you know um a little bit on the nose that, you know, a, a liturgist would use Facebook, for example, and I'm just standing there going, like, please don't ask me questions. But then the tension is potentially that, you know, because you, you just realize, like, I mean, our world is immersed in social media and this like this is just yeah. a given in my environment. Yeah. But I understand why a Jesuit, you know, who's, like, committed to worship studies for his whole life hasn't got an Instagram. Yeah. Like, I'm yeah. capable of recognizing that. But then the possibility of you becoming an apologist yeah. for your community is real. So, you know, you could walk in and kind of, you know, kind of say, well, my way is the better way. And I think this has been, unfortunately, some of the more popular kind of um, debates that have gone on is that, you know, worship wars is a real thing um, in, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily, um, yeah, it, it's it's hard, isn't it? So, and I think, you know, I've really walked through those kind of tensions in just working out how do I, as, as one of the first people within my church community to explore liturgy um, and, you know, to even stand in scholarly spaces, mm-hmm. like we're not, the Western Sydney, like Sydney dynamic is not even necessarily pro-education. Mm-hmm. So to be standing there as a representative of a church that, you know, is now, open to academics and you know and that and to be representative of that community but then also in these spaces that are opening me to ideas and um allowing me to hear people on their own terms Mm -hmm. I guess you know you kind of have to work out well where do I fit and so that self-reflection has been a really important part of my journey Mm -hmm. in saying, you know, look, I come from this community and I love it. And it's my parents attend it. You know, I grew up here. This is like, I, you know, I, this is my church. And at the same time, you know, I can understand that it has responsibilities to the people who use its music to, you know, those who perhaps come from other places and how that we conduct those conversations and have those spaces of hospitality for each other is crucial to how we, um, as a congregation, but also the global church interact. So Tanya, can you tell us about the scope of this project, the book, the Hillsong movement examined, uh, that you've co-edited with Tom Wagner? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably best for me to kind of backtrack a little bit and just start with my MPhil research, because that was really, I guess, where this book emerged from. So my MPhil, um, was conducted with the Australian Catholic university with supervisor there. And I was a member of Hillsong who was, you know, getting involved in 
academics. And I was, you know, interested in doing all kinds of things, but the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne has a really like kind of strong focus on Australian music. And so they kind of impressed upon me that, you know, I had been a part of, you know, a very influential uh, type of music in Australia and that it would be kind of a travesty in their view for me not to take that opportunity. And to, they were to right kind of write. and they were correct, <laughs> just to put that <laughs> on the record. Time, I was very reticent. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, they were. They were. And I'm really grateful because obviously, you know, it, it has emerged into a, a field and a conversation that, you know, I've been involved in now for a long time. Uh, so, the, the dissertation that I wrote was published in 2010 and it was called Shout to the Lord. Um, I think it's called Music and Social Change or something in Hillsong. Um, and I really, during that, at that, in that project, I looked at three factors um, and I, I looked at the church through kind of a lens of like, you know, someone who had been involved in producing the music, but was also, you know, a scholar. And so um it was, I looked at 1996 to 2007 in the musical, the theological and the business practices of the church throughout that time and um, did ethnographic interviews and things like that. And, um, and yeah, it, it ended up being, you know, an interesting project. And I, it really led to me connecting with Tom Wagner over in the UK, who was doing his PhD. Um, and he decided to take I had, you know, drawn on the work of Mark Evans, who's a musicologist in Australia, who had looked at the early phases of Hillsong music. And so I had decided to go from 96 onwards because this was really the emergence of the United Youth brand. And so um, this was like a really important phase. It was also the phase where, um, you know, our worship pastors changed. So Jeff Bullock left the church. He was iconic and of Hillsong music. In fact, he was Hillsong music. And then when he left, there was this, you know, transition to Darlene Check being the worship pastor. And that was a huge transition in my mind. And so I took that, that time frame. And then Tom took from 2007 onwards, which was really looking at the globalization of Hillsong. And so, and the, the way that the Hillsong, um, sound emerged, um, which was kind of, initiated in my research, but he really looked at, you know, how it worked globally, which I think was a really great thing. And so we really had these in these great conversations. He wasn't a That's member awesome. of the church, but he was doing ethnographic work in it. And we would ring and, you know, I'd be in Sydney and I'd be reflecting upon what I learned during my MPhil and he would be talking about his PhD. And we, it was a really productive conversation. Mm -hmm. And so when he initiated um, the Congregational Music Conference in Oxford or the Congregational Song Conference, um, I always get the one name. I'm so sorry. CCMC, <laughs> Congregational, Christian Congregational Music Conference. Yeah, great. Yeah. Awesome. So he created that. Um, you know, he was in the, on the founding kind of, you know, um, events team. And, yeah. and so I flew over and we had the conversation. And so we sat in a pub in Oxford, which for me was like, you know, was like being in the world of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> like, you know, like, like an Australian girl to kind of turn up. And he just went, look, you know, we should write a book. Um, and at that point, I think I was really grappling with, like, it was really surreal. It was crazy. Um, and, but I was really grappling with these multiple identities that I was holding. Mm -hmm. So a scholar who attended the church, who was a part of creating the music, but who was teaching on it. And there were just so many, it was like, you know, studying your family. Mm -hmm. Like, it was like this sense of like, I don't even know what I think anymore. I don't think I should... Uh I don't think that content should yet be a book. And so we, instead we talked about how vital, how um, vital that conversation had been. And so we proposed the idea that um, we get together some insiders and outsiders, um, scholars who we really respected and who we'd drawn from along the way and who mm. had created this kind of, you know, conversation to create a book. And so that's really where the Hillsong um, book comes from. And so there's like, you know, when you look at it, there's um, some historical perspectives that are really great. So even pre-Hillsong, I love that. Like, you know, we're looking at what was Australia like before Hillsong turned up and then what did Hillsong contribute? So Mark Evans's work is in there as, you know, a really important musicology a musicologist. Um, and I just, yeah, just want to register. I was so pleased to see in uh, Denise Austin's uh, essay, just yeah. the, the recognition of the latter rain preachers and background that helped influence. Yeah. Really that's well. a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like, yeah, okay, exactly. I'm, in, I'm in my lane now. I can like, figure, I can understand what's happening. Yes. You know? um, 
Yeah, and I think it, that's exactly it, isn't it? I think like the scholarship is caught up to where we were kind of sensing that it needed to be in some of these conversations. And so in many ways it does feel like when we put the, the volume together in 2016, it felt like um, the world wasn't entirely ready. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> right. I think, you know, I'll say, uh, this. I don't think this is an overstatement, but in 2016, like if you ask someone – and even now, to be fair, but if you, uh, you, what's the, you know, the latter rain, right? Like, like there's no, there's very little knowledge of that outside of very specific Pentecostal context, but, yeah. and in scholarly and liturgical studies, I mean, Esther Ruth has just been like preaching the latter rain yeah. for the last, you know, five years now. I mean, and people are like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I feel like these conversations are really productive conversations and we sense that there was something really great going on within them, but I think it's now emerging as yeah. to why they were yeah. great conversation mm. partners. And mm. so, yeah, there's a history and then there's um, the church itself, like a snapshot. And I, I remember being extremely frustrated pleading with these scholars, could someone look at the women in Hillsong, mm. you know, so, and nobody would. So in the end I took that chapter <laughs> and that's my contribution to the volume because I mean, Denise's chapter shows like that this was a huge contribution that Hillsong had in terms of elevating mm -hmm. the role of women in ministry and um, an intentional kind of egalitarianism around the roles. Mm -hmm. um, and that yeah. was huge and has been a huge yeah. contribution of yeah. Hillsong movement. So then, you know, and then the the, um, the ethnic or racial kind of conversations and also the global conversations. Christina Rocher, who's a university researcher here in Western Sydney University, um, or Western University now it's called, um, she looks at Brazilians who actually come to Australia because of the tourism ads in Brazil, like come to Australia and have a great lifestyle. So they're, the, they're kind of, you know, the, the wealthiest kind of oh, kids in, in Brazil, but they come to Sydney and then they end up having to be cleaners to be able to sustain mm. life in this mm. really expensive city. And so they kind of gravitated not to Brazilian churches, but to Hillsong. And there's this extraordinarily vibrant Brazilian community in the city congregation that, you know, um, before church have like all kinds of like Brazilian music going on in the foyer and like they just party. They're like a constant, like if you were Brazilians, Brazilians in general, I think, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think like there may be a, a part of the landscape of Hillsong that hadn't really been seen. Mm -hmm. So I, I really appreciated because we have this um, joke that in, well, I mean, not, not a lot of us, but in terms of like the musicians, that any time that they appeared in public space, someone would kind of put in the chat, come to Brazil. And so it kind of became a joke that come to Brazil yeah. movement, um, the, the petitioning, yeah. come to come to yeah. Brazil, Hillsong. So like, you know, that transnational kind of connection yeah. Um, yeah. is illustrated. And then, you know, we've there's a number of other kind of things. I, I love like when Reagan's, um, chapter on really like this mm. American mm. critique of, you know, Hillsong. And I think that again is aged so beautifully in that. <laughs> it has aged beautifully. We don't often say that about articles written uh, three or four years ago, but you know. You no, we don't, right? But then so like, like, I think it was really this emerging critique of what is Hillsong doing to American music. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, this, that's, been a conversation that's really evolved from there and um mark has mark porter has a really interesting take on like hillsong being planted in oxford and just how hillsong lands in a city that already has existing churches mm. and who goes and why this taking of territory mm. you know in that is like i mean it's it's audacious mm. right for hillsong sure. in in england like given that we you know our state has this historic relationship with the Church of England. And yeah. so this Pentecostal church plants back in the center of, you know, Old. the empire in that sense. It's a very, very audacious, but there's this place that that yeah. congregation comes to hold. And he kind of notes that. And I think that's really important to the talk conversations about church planting and some of those, you know, and then, yeah, like um, a number of other articles that kind of range across like, you know, um, conversations around institution and the role of churches in, um, you know, how to vision statements and, you know, mm. mission statements and how, to, how does that kind of engage with the external audience that's reading it and, um, and what are the socio-ethical 
kind of contours and how does the branding work? So, I mean, it covered a lot of things, yeah. right? But like, we just yeah. thought it was this like dinner party of all of there our favorite colors. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best description of an edited volume, I think, probably. <laughs> yeah, this is our ideal dinner party on the Hillsong conversation and, and certainly ones conversations that we'd had that were um, mm. really important and that we felt needed to like elements needed of all of these perspectives needed to be included mm. in the nuanced conversation or scholarship around Hillsong. So we call it a spirited conversation. And I think that's like really where we landed that it was like, I mean, it's certainly like some of our initial, my initial conversations with some of these people were not particularly like, uh, I mean, they kind of were confronting mm. for me certainly. And for like maybe the other person as well. I mean, it, you, you kind of, you come face to face with the, the mm. phenomenon you're critiquing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's kind of hard. So then, you know, but continuing to speak from our truth and be able to see that, that each of those, you know, um, yeah, those perspectives had a real place, the insider and the outsider conversation that you make in an edit is really, really important. And then also just that, yeah, God would really direct the conversation. It would be spirited and spirited. And the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I guess the Holy Spirit would get, would really lead that. And, and I think for me, these conversations have been that have been a place for me to really, work out my faith with fear and trembling, right. you know, like to do the job yeah. of being a Christian and responsible to all these people and thinking, you know, what would Jesus do <laughs> in this context? I don't know. Yeah, that's also not a methodology I'm, I'm super familiar with for my academic work. I sort of, now how do I, how do I go about this? Well, what would Jesus do? What questions well, I mean, would Jesus ask as interlocutors? No. It's kind of, you know, a funny way to say it, but I think there yeah, is. Right, right. I'm like, it sounds, but also. <laughs> but it, I mean, yeah, kind of. So, I mean, uh, that it, yeah, it's, it's a very um, mega church way of like thinking through the ethics of research yeah. in context. I think. Yeah. I, the one last thing I appreciate about, uh, I wanted to name and I appreciate it about the scope of the project is the afterward, um, sort of getting this, uh, offering this opportunity in print to have someone, yeah. someone else. I mean, you're obviously from, from the church, but, uh, having someone mm-hmm. else offering a response to the volume and, you know, uh, you know, the, the response yeah. isn't, you know, some weighty lengthy, you know, here are all the things yeah. that y'all wrote that I thought uh, mischaracterized that, or, you know, or something, right. Like, yeah. uh, but this sort of charitable, yeah. like, this is who we are. And, um, and I think, you know, something that's, you know, obviously increasingly important in ethnographic kind of work in general. And, and something that's a curiosity to me about, about this project is that it's not an ethnography per se, but because it has a specific community that it's focused around, it's, it is kind of. And so like the ambiguity of what kind of project this is and just how it's in dialogue with the church uh, churches, the church community, the church network, um, that it's trying to describe in a way that, uh, offers, you know, the chance to, to hear something back, which is just such a, yeah, such an important piece yeah, I mean, it, it was really amazing. So we, when we got all these scholars together, we had like, you know, a bit of a conversation with them and we were like, you know, we realize you all do research um, and you've got your various methodologies, but at some point in your chapter, we'd like you to touch on something ethnographic about the community. And so, yeah, it does kind of play with what ethnography is in many ways. Like, you know, there are readings of the website. There's, you know, all kinds of different methodologies uh, when, you know, looks at the music. Uh, there's like historical kind of, you know, engagements that try and draw upon interviews. And it, it's really kind of a methodological um, exploration in and of itself. But the the idea that the church would respond to it was really this kind of nice guiding way for us to say, you know, this is how we maintain it as a conversation mm-hmm. is like, you know, whatever you write is fine. You know, we're not, we're not going to, you know, edit you, redact you, you know, but, but the church is going to read yeah. you. And so yeah. um, that was kind of fun. Right. Because, and I think it really does at the time I was really thinking through responsibilities to, mm-hmm ethnographic participants. Um, I was working with Aboriginal uh, elders who were quite strong in leading me and what they felt was an appropriate responsibility um, for researchers 
as an over-researched people group, you know, they had really put a lot of thought into it and it wasn't, you know, I really learned from that. And I think it was really fun because, and, you know, our general manager, George Agadenian is just so um, amazing when it comes to this stuff, like, because I could be a thorn in their side, you know, like um, I, they're the insider who's continually just saying things that, you know, and not particularly on script for a church <laughs> doing scholarship from within a church community sure. is a little bit, you know, it could really be on the nose, but he's so gracious in, in reading it. And, um, they, they read it thoroughly and they, you know, they really reflected on it. And there were some things mm. that, you know, later came up as conversations. Like I know in my chapter, I talked about how uncomfortable I was at us at Hillsong interviewing, um, Mark Driscoll and, you know, how that had really, been a really difficult thing for me as a member of the church um and so we had some follow-up conversations but the statement was just really lovely it wasn't offensive it wasn't you know here's how we set the record straight with this volume but just saying you know we recognize that Hillsong um you know is going to be studied and we're open to that and for me that's my church like I that's the church that I know when I grew up in is you know this church that was itself but didn't really like had a really strong sense of humor about itself like you know it's very aware that we don't get everything right um you know that there's um you know on reflection when we look back at some of the things that have happened we're like oh we probably wouldn't do it that way again but a learning community I think that's what you know I loved about growing up at Hillsong was the ability to self-reflect so for me it felt really consistent with us but Um, yeah, it might be a bit surprising for people to read. Yeah, cool. I can pivot to talking more broadly about uh, academics and about um, education, of I mean, liturgical education. I mean, it's something we're noticing at the graduate school level too, even in a mainline uh, seminary like Duke Divinity School, increasingly the students who come to our school uh, and to many mainline schools, their primary liturgical formation is contemporary worship. I mean, not the majority yeah. of them, but an increasing number year over year. And so, yeah. you know, in in fact, it seems that there's like an imperative to me that we we do the same kind of, we have the same kind of scholarly conversations about this tradition um, in, in ways that, uh, yeah, are able to generate sort of meaningful discussions, um, you know, helpful self-evaluation also putting, you know, the contingency and the, and the sort of particularity of other traditions in their rightful kind of, you know, place. And just that, um, what we've inherited is, is what we've inherited. And then there's no, you can't, you know, you can't just change that or you can't just decide to, to love something else or to have been formed by something else or. Yeah. I mean, and that was really the, I guess, emergence of the Hillsong book for sure mm-hmm. was, you know, to try and grapple with those kinds of um, things to try and create a bit of a history, I guess, for those conversations and mm-hmm. for, um, for the emergence of scholarship that both took, you know, this music on its own terms and was able to analyze it in relation to its internal, um, thematic kind of, you know, understandings in regards to liturgy. I mean, so lyrics, sorry. And like, you know, theological content, mm-hmm. um, but that also was willing to kind of hear the conversations from other denominational perspectives. Um, and I think, you know, some of the research that's gone on has been really interesting around like, um, what, what the lyrics and music mean in other contexts. Uh, and that, that conversation is, really fruitful I think because you know um in when you're talking in terms of production of music it's really just this kind of relationship between the producer and the consumer if that makes Mm. sense like but in liturgical music liturgical music is a resource and the church sees it as a resource and so then there's kind of this ability to really think about um the role that it plays in other contexts so Within the Hillsong volume, there's a particular chapter um, written by King, and um, she is looking at the way that Hungarian, the Hungarian youth movement used Hillsong 
as kind of resistance against the state um, and that this was really useful in, you know, kind of reimagining the national identity and overturning a, an oppressive government, um, mm. you know, and that kind of puts against, you know, places in which Hillsong perhaps, Hillsong music has perhaps become a dominant culture that isn't so useful or helpful and um, has gained meanings that are negative. Mm. Um in some of the contexts, you know, that I, I listen to, I guess, you know, you hear about, <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. You yeah, read about on Twitter. It's not me. It's not me, Tanya. <laughs> no, no. And I think like what I've loved is being able to kind of, you know, call in some of my scholarly friends and go, help, help. Like, uh, you know, can we, can we tease this out a little bit as, you know, as to what's going on here? Because I mean, music is such a, you have such strong reactions to music, right? So you love it or you hate it and, mm-hmm. you know, you use it or you don't use it. And, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> it's like now this kind of very millennial kind of logics around ethics of using liturgical music in space and time and place. And so I think, you know, um, yeah, I guess like my hope is that the liturgical discussion and the way that the scholarship kind of evolves, that it does kind of make room for this understanding of the global and the local perspectives and how they interact and, um, making room for places where Hillsong is used as resistance music and then, you, you know, making, you know, and being able to hear, you know, what it meant for Hungarian youth and, you know, and what it's meant for Australian youth and what it's meant for, you know, in particular times and places, but then also, you know, allowing for the, you know, it to be, um, retain, like to lose its usefulness and need new expression Mm -hmm. and form as well. Um, I think those kinds of conversations are potentially where liturgical discussions in Australia amongst my students, at least are going. And I think that's really exciting because we can, you know, be bringing some of those mm-hmm. scholarly frames to it rather than only talking in the popular terms, which is where worship leaders kind of turn mm-hmm. up in my classroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're like, this is a good song and this is, you know, yeah. um, this sounds good. And, you know, you're like, okay, but good is a category that we really have to, you know, think mm. through and play with and like good on whose terms and, um, mm. you know, yeah, I guess just deepening understanding so that we can be really faithful yeah. to the call that, you know, we have in regards to like being able to curate the worship of our communities. Yeah, yeah it might come uh, as a as news, a surprise to, to some of our listeners that it just in general uh, that Hillsong College has people like you asking those kinds of questions to students who turn up there, right? Like just that itself is... Yeah is uh you know from the outsider uh proclivity for for prejudice you know that that that's a remarkable thing that's happening too yeah i think you know so we've i've been kind of having this bit of a discussion so i mean i i started in hillsong as a singer and songwriter and you know performed with Hillsong for many years this is the time to play Jesus what a beautiful name (laughs) I didn't I mean I I, yeah I'm sorry (laughs) no I'm joking too um but yeah I guess you know so in that sense like I've been in a number of spaces within our um our the musical like creative team and then also you know the publishing team I have um, connections with them. And then, you know, now I'm in Hillsong College. I think, I don't think those questions are not asked inside the songwriters communities, but I think that it's not always as obvious about how songwriters wrestle with some of these things. And I think, you know, that's, there's many, many, many reasons for that. But I, I think, you know, Hillsong music in an, its core was, you know, a representation of all of the songs and all of the productivity that was going on in this huge creative community. I mean, like at last count, it was like a thousand musicians and singers, you know, who were like producing music in Sydney and who, you know. Just in Sydney, um, a thousand in Sydney. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. And I, I don't mean to, I'm sorry if my general manager's listening, like I'm not supposed to like, you know, talk about the numbers because I don't have access to the data, but no, but I guess like, you know, just to know that there are hundreds and hundreds of these people. And then, so what makes it to the Hillsong albums is generally speaking, you know, the, the music that that creative community believe is most useful for that creative community in leading our church. Mm. And so you know, you only really ever see a very small slice of what's going on behind the scenes in the Hillsong congregation. Right. Um, and so That's then, 
I guess in some ways, you know, unfortunately, you know, what can come across is more the buy this album as opposed to like, here's all the really in-depth conversations that we've been having about what worship is and means in our church um, and listening to, you know, the the things that we've been engaging with, like the, the podcasts we've been listening to, the books we've been reading, the, you know, all of that kind of activity um, kind of gets you know, put into an album and it becomes, it, it's more an audio, you know, or um, a slice of that yeah. spirituality sure. and life. So in that sense, like it doesn't for me feel like it's inconsistent with Hillsong, but I can understand how someone who's at a distance may not realize that those kind of conversations are constantly going on in our community. Yeah. And um, yeah, we do this now in scholarship too. I think too, there's perhaps some, um a disconnect between and this is a, a challenge i've i've encountered in my own attempts to talk about the way contemporary worship praise and worship music is formed versus the way that uh contemporary christian music ccm perhaps has had a different model historically for how songs get from you know the creation stage to the recorded album stage and just um yeah. and not that this is true in all cases but you know with all kinds of kinds of you know there's a there's a whole there's a myri- there's myriad ways that this happens but that there are communities that are writing and producing songs that eventually get recorded and this is a you know the sort of historic story yeah. of praise and worship right like community songs that sort yeah. of bubbled to the top and then get recorded as opposed to the yeah. kind of songwriter driven um albums which there are those in wor- in the worship world too yes. but um like yeah sure but uh but yeah so it's so mm-hmm. sort of you know i mean how many if like for example you know, there's yeah. how many songs on a Hillsong album, annual, you know, album? Um, like- yeah, I mean, like, it's it's changed over the years. But, I mean, if you were to, like, look at something traditional, like, I mean, maximum 20, right? Like, yeah. it's of, of how many of how many that you've sung over the course of a year, right? Like, uh, 20 out of, you know. Yeah. And I think, it, yeah, I mean, well, 20 out of, like, all of the activity of all of those songwriters yeah. and musicians right. and singers, you know, oh my goodness, like it's a tiny little slice. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and so in that sense, you've got to really be very intentional about what you bring to the album. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when I think about it, it, it's quite incredible. Like our senior pastor, Brian Houston had a vision for kind of taking, um, the mechanisms of contemporary Christian music, but also like hitting it within a church. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in many instances, and I don't know of another instance, like I think we, you know, Bethel and a number of churches have taken on this model. But at the time, it was so revolutionary that these people were not just music producers, but they were like attending and involved in their local church. And their music, like, you know, creation was very much connected to the worship of that community. And so, you know, it was an intentional direction of rather than being artists and you know getting famous or doing any of those things but in many ways really just embedding within a church mm-hmm. and whether the songs are recorded and whether they become famous and whether they go around the globe like you know in many ways that had to be very secondary to the way that you participated in the church yeah. and that um that vision of you know it being first and foremost for jesus and you know then second and you know absolutely for the community of god or um the the congregation was a really a really revolutionary kind of you know model so yeah i'm thinking about um i'm thinking about albums earlier or early worship albums in the 80s 90s that you know would have to compare to what you're talking about you know they would have a song from or song or two from specific communities that were then sort of you know put together on a an, uh, an album with all these other songs or an on-site live recording from you know yeah. live from brownsville or that you know but yeah. but they're not necessarily songs that are just of that community or something you know there's just yeah, yeah it's sort of a really a different vision and, and i imagine over the years the challenge of um continuing to pursue that in the middle of also having all these new concerns that come up with scale and um you yeah. know just That's just crazy. the new com- complexities of and i actually was thinking about um so and this is really where the hillsong book emerged from you know was that so my research was really based in 
the emergence of the Hillsong United Band. Mm-hmm. So my MPhil really looked at that and the youth movement that kind of had contributed and kind of created the second musical product, or you know, of Hillsong, which was a huge thing at the time. Like the idea that you know you wouldn't just have one. Mm church product sure. but that the youth would have its own voice and its own identity and that they could have songs that maybe weren't the songs that were sung in church mm-hmm. that was like radical you know? <laughs> um, so like that, I can hear that how, just like, even just describing it you know 20 years later yeah. or whatever like it still feels like yeah yeah I can see oh, how that yeah. would be radical <laughs> yeah yeah I mean because like you, you kind of it, it's really that generational the social generations yeah. and how they interact in a church environment and are you like allowed, you know, to sing songs that ex- gave expression to, you know, what it is to be a youth, a young person who's, you know, devoted mm-hmm. to Jesus as opposed to like a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. you know, which was the yeah. particularly strong demographic that, you know, our church reached mm-hmm. and, you know, at the, in the early years. And then so, um, you know, my research really looked into that and then Tom, Tom Wagner's research um, built upon that to look in, into London. And one of the dynamics that was going on at that time was that the London congregation were meeting in the Dominion Theatre and it was like this real, like, taking back secular space for Jesus, you know, because mm. you kind of, it was like the the place where, you know, the musicals were held, like, you know, in fact, like critiques almost of like the church. And, um, and then on a Sunday, Hillsong would come and bump in and, you know, would do church. And then so... It, London started producing its own music because there were so many people who were involved in, you know, the um, the musical scene in London, and it's, you know, it had so much more access to recording facilities, and, you know, there were even people that were, which in Australian terms, it was like people who like do music for a living were attending, you know, the Hillsong congregation in London. And that was the gigging scene in Sydney was like, you know, dead. It was, you know, you couldn't really make a living off it. And so there were these professional musicians. And so they started to make albums. And then, you know, Tom's research kind of uh, documents how it kind of became that the London congregation made the decision that actually they much preferred the Sydney music and so because it was like representative of this pure Mm. um, music that came from this completely other place and so it wasn't kind of tainted by this industry and by the the things that went along with the industry you know like the sex drug and rock and roll kind of you know wrappings that made it so difficult for the London musicians to kind of interact and so this is really a part of the Hillsong sound is these two kind of Mm. things that were happening simultaneously like the youth are creating their own songs in the Western Sydney kind of area. And, um, and this is like, you know, articulating things that this generation want to say. Mm. And at the same time, you know, the London congregation is kind of starting to move away from its professionalized sounds um, and looking for this otherness, um, this purity of what goes going on in the youth group. And so that's really the formation of the Hillsong sound those years. Um, And so I, I think, you know, these push and pull kind of mechanisms and the way that, you know, these aesthetics are formed uh, become really interesting um, for historians such yeah, as yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, I've got my, you've got my, my, my sort of thing, right? Like um, thinking in particular of, of two things, one, uh, one less historical, but just that um, some work that um, I encountered first, on this, on the, on the worship and, and well, on the music topic and Andrew Mall's work on proximity. Um, yeah. and I'm blanking on the scholar's name that he's channeling, uh, on the question of, of mainstreams and peripheries. Um, but thinking about how the, um, yeah. Um, so that in uh, sort of on top of, or in, in complicated relationship with trans, that sort of trans Atlantic transnational, stuff uh, but also in the okay. historical sense that the the revolutions of coming back to simplicity of um trying to like reclaim something that uh feels like it was lost or you know with some other change that happened even just in the worship world in general around you know the late 90s like the sense of like like the um, coming back to the heart of worship being the sort of the the title track yeah. of that whole expression yeah. um at least in the u.s yeah. based uh, well and the british and the u.s based um uh 
Mm-hmm. Um, so back to, to Monique's work on on the the British invasion, uh, quote unquote, in the in the <laughs> late uh, yes. in the late nineties. Yeah, yeah, um, and there was really that kind of a desire, wasn't it, for you know to maybe strip away some of the things that had really mm-hmm. been building up in the worship world. And I think maybe if you have like an Australian group that actually had no access to that whatsoever, Mm. you know, maybe that does provide, you know, aesthetic difference that you can hear um, and that you can kind of say, oh, look, this does offer us some way of being able to return to what is really important or what we consider to be really important. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I think obviously that time and place has now been translated into there's a much more robust discussion about race and ethnicity and the ways in which those sounds perhaps have, yeah. you know, in, yeah. have really uh, preferenced some cultures over others yeah. in, in yeah. terms of our global church. Yeah. Um, to, so I think, yeah. I was just saying it's interesting to, to hear you mention that because I was just thinking about, um, you know, perhaps even in the trajectory of Hillsong's music, or multiple musics um over the years uh you know going from um something that really celebrates a particularly austria like the god's great southland sort of perspective um in music uh, to something that you know has a particularity to its sound but has been able to translate beyond its um, context yeah, or yeah. At, at not even beyond, right? Because Hillsong is a global en- mm-hmm. entity that way, but beyond an, uh, an Australian, um, particularly celebrating its Australianness. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really interesting because for me, back in the, you know, and I know that this is very much true of Jeff Bullock's mm-hmm. songs in the early years, uh, Australia has what's called cultural cringe. And so there's always been this sense, and it's post question mark colonial, if that makes sense. So even now, you know, um, for me to travel to Oxford to be a part of a congregational music, I mean, it feels so legit. You're going back to like the motherland, mm. you know, or like the, the empire to, to yeah. share your share your scholarship. Yeah. Like, you know, we, under, we understand ourselves on the fringes of the earth. And I yeah. think, um, yeah. you know, for particularly the Western Sydney area was very um, Irish and convict and you know many of the people who attended in the early years would have convict heritage like myself you know so you you tra- physically transported from the place where you know your heritage is to this mm. strange land and that grappling with that land um and the the realities of life on it and the difficulties of being alienated from land mm. um have really formed the australian identity and so i think you know for Hillsong in its very early years to have this like Australian-ness and very, and to promote it was kind of in a sense, it's the opposite of uh, exceptionalism in the sense that it wasn't so much from this bravado mm-hmm. of like the great yeah. Southland of the Holy Spirit, but more just like even imagining this as being in spirited mm-hmm. land. Like that yeah. was, you know, extraordinary. And then so, you know, to for that to be the case, and then I think, you know, there was always this, kind of push out into like, you know, something else, God's surely doing something amazing in the other parts of the globe and we really need to be there and, and, you know, engaging it, this cosmopolitan, Mm -hmm. um, extraordinarily mobile Australian identity that, you know, you can find an Australian anywhere in the world, you know, and um, they're they're usually you don't see them at first, right, because they're, you know, enculturated but (laughs) they're hiding from their own culture and they're trying to find themselves this mm. lostness that mm. is in a, a part of the Australian white identity and then so I mean there's like all of these factors going on but then obviously as we gain you know these global congregations they they um speak back into the center in various ways and so uh, I think you know some of the ways in which we've been negotiating though that conversation so recognizing that um, the lostness really comes from it not being our land, that, you know, there are traditional owners, there are Aboriginal people here and they've been a part of Hillsong from the early days too mm. and allowing them to have a voice. You know, they are the traditional custodians of this land and so that gets put into the mix as well as, you know, these very real cultures in which we've planted congregations mm. and so, you know, their Indigenous peoples and traditions and um this it's become this evolving conversation uh that 
now I think we're starting to see a little bit how the Hillsong sound can possibly create hospitable space or dialogue for all of those aesthetic sounds while still retaining this sense of we're all a part of the same church um, and the agency to be able to be involved and to be able to, you know, have your culture represented. I think those are some of the exciting conversations that we've kind of now, we're now aware of because of that global nature of our organization. One of the other, um, you know, thinking of the sort of progression of Hillsong over the years and their sense of self and, you know, or the creatives within Hillsong as even if, you know, not to call, not to name it as a monolith, um, but you know, the, if that community of people shaping, shaping the church's worship life, I'm thinking of, of work, um, that doesn't, um, as far as I can tell, doesn't make it, in, it really into this Hillsong books. So I wanted to ask you about it. One of your and Tom Wagner's early articles, uh, which was really helpful for me when I was writing my uh, undergraduate thesis, um, which uh, I have to confess was on um, theology in Hillsong. So it was a bit kind of simplistic, but, uh, you know, it's like, uh, I'm going to look at the range of theological and liturgical sort of expressions in this, you know, in, in Hillsong's repertoire over the last 10 years. Um, but you're, you're all that as a preface <laughs> to saying um, your you and Tom's essay about the, theo- the evolving theological emphases of Hillsong yeah. songs um, being one way to think about and, and perhaps a, a low hanging fruit now, um, as I see the, the field of contemporary praise and worship research um, growing, yeah. um, if you can call it a field even yet, um, but the, uh, where I see people being interested in writing saying, okay, I'm going to look at the text. I'm going to try to articulate kind of what's, what's present here in the text. And, and that doesn't really come through in the book, but this much more um, cosmic conversation about yeah. about meaning about you know uh, it's just sort of the range of of things that are are pertinent perhaps to talking about the theology of of Hillsong but that are much more complex than looking at lyrical developments over time yeah yeah and look I guess you know that really came out of my MPhil so my MPhil was um written investigating the musical, theological, and business practices of the church between 1996 and 2007. And so that was like the theological kind of developments was one kind of portion that we pulled out and Mm -hmm. had a bit of a conversation um, about and then formulated that article from because Tom was doing his his research in London at the time as well. Um, So I think, you know, the... um, Hopefully I can write that into a monograph this year. I I mean, I'm I'm hoping. Um, But, yeah, I I think there's a lot more work to be done in regards to the the way that the musical, theological and business practices have worked together. And and that was really what my aim was, was to show that these are very difficult to pull apart. Um, Hmm. It is useful to look at it. Oh, I found uh, in terms of the methodology it was really useful to look at it in a in a longevity so a 10-year period is kind of was kind of more truthful of the church's uh developments and because you have like you know during that time during the Mm -hmm. 1996 to 2007 you see like um supernatural empowerment so there's this really pentecostal kind of you know we're doing this music because you know we believe that we're empowered to do so by the holy spirit and you know when people sing our music Mm -hmm. they also get this you know infilling and that goes from that really strong pentecostal emphasis away from that you know much more into like this kind of prosperity gospel almost of like you know um, we're blessed and like, you know, this mm-hmm. is really mm-hmm. tangible way to understand our blessing is, you know, God's presence in the music. And then, you know, mm-hmm. we benefit mm-hmm. in all these ways. And then to another like completely different place of like, actually, that's not the point of this <laughs> endeavor. You know, the endeavor is so that, you know, we be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And yeah, we recognize our blessedness as the people of God, but we're called to the world. Wow. And so, so that's the primary goal of, you know, us coming and gathering and being filled with the spirit is that we can, you know, then open our hands in many ways and, you know, be become engaged in our, in the world and almost a social gospel emerges throughout this, this time. Um, And so like, I think, you know, looking at those 
theological ebbs and flows was really helpful. Um, and so the, that article kind of pulled out the stuff that was maybe the most, um, the easiest way to talk about this at the time, which was using um, album covers yeah. and kind yeah, of talking gonna... about the way, <laughs> yeah, like the visual merchandising and how that represented the self-conception of the church at the time and how, you know, we kind of were engaged in more, I mean, to wear this like, you know, really almost hick church in like Sydney, Australia, like this tiny little town and, um, you know, creating music and it's being kind of taken overseas by integrity and we're not really, you know, in control of that process much mm -hmm. to us, you know, engaging and being involved in these industry conversations and, you know, being told, well, Darlene's this huge celebrity. You have to put her on the front and center in your albums and us realizing, oh, wow, you know, our worship past is extremely famous. Uh, and <laughs> I love that. You realizing uh, like sort of post facto, like, oh, she's really famous. <laughs> <laughs> and us grappling yeah. with what does that mean? Yeah. Like, you know, people screaming when they see her, yeah. you know, and um, and she's actually this really formidable and beautiful and, um, you know, compassionate music leader. Like, you know, she's like yeah. the woman who's, you know, really in charge of developing this yeah. sound and, and, and the way that it, you know, develops. Um, and then, you know, and then, us getting to the point where we realize actually, you know what, it's not so helpful to have these celebrities and to put them on our marketing. But instead, we really want to push this understanding as we see it, which is we are the church. Mm. And that church is a global church. And so, you know, you see them visual merchandising really change from this, like, you know, Darlene and the other celebrities like, you know, Russell Fager and Marty Sampson and Ruben Morgan and the heads on the albums yeah, to right. like these generic kind of like, you know, pictures of worshiping hands and globes and mm -hmm. how can mm -hmm. we depict this? Because I think, you know, in, in many ways, I, I think we were realizing that we were not only taking on the marketing language or the branding language that was being used at the time of celebrity, but we were actually creating celebrities through this language as well. And that wasn't what the vision of Hillsong really was. It was like this church. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that uh, that article kind of tries to put it in a little bit of a nutshell. Yeah. And, you know, I think yeah. you look back in time and, I mean, it's it's well-cited and I am, mm -hmm. you know, extraordinarily yeah. grateful for how it developed me in creating it. But I, I'm hopeful that I can kind of pull that M-fill to, together a little more and kind of create a bit of a, um, yeah, a more full way of explaining this. Yeah. Uh, in the future. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, I hope the album covers make it into that too, because um, yeah. they're, it's a, a remarkable story. And I think there's something to be said. There's a bigger conversation to have too, just about the visuals of contemporary worship that nobody's nobody's really had yet. So if you're listening to this and you're looking for a master's degree project, um, some, some visual sort of iconographic history of praise and worship, contemporary worship in general, there's plenty of work to do. Okay, let's turn to this, um, this sort of last question. Um, if I'm a worship leader, a pastor, a preacher, someone involved in planning worship, um, and I'm listening to this conversation about uh, Hillsong and about um, this book, um, what, yeah, what do you want me to take away? What do you want to say to me? Yeah, well, I guess like the first thing I would say is, you know, um, you're incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much for the work that you do and for all of the early mornings and all the things that are unseen. I think, you know, you couldn't come for Hillsong and not <laughs> kind of, you know, say that. I think we recognize, you know, how much work it goes into, mm. into being right. a worship leader. Mm. And at the same time, you know, um, I think perhaps there's a sense that, you know, it's a weighty responsibility and there are these competing responsibilities that you have as a worship leader sometimes that, I guess I would want to affirm and just say, you know, we see this, you know, for those of us who are in scholarship can see that it's, you know, it can be a really, it can be a tough gig. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah. you know, I think my own research comes out of being, you know, having been a worship leader and having grappled with some of those tensions. So, you know, I think about, you know, the God meet, you know, responsibility to have this um, spirituality that's life-giving and to be in a place where, you know, you're 
you're able to, you know, give from <laughs> a refreshed space and, you know, that that's hard. And then at the same time, you know, to be able to hold that intention with the God and us conversation and um, to think about your role within the community and how you lead and curate those spaces for others um, is, is really important. And I guess I, I would just affirm that, that, you know, there is, um, it, it's not a static moment. Worship leading is a, is a journey and the longer you commit to a community and the more that you're willing to get into the, the, that kind of a, um, a relationship where you do explore, you know, how the community is engaging God together, the better it gets. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the ways that we sell worship leaders short is by encouraging them just to focus on a worship set, mm. um, as opposed yeah. to, you know, the journey of worship leadership over a long, a, a period of time. Um, and it, it's not just a set, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, you're involved in curating the worship of the community of God as Chuck from um, would say, and that curation role is really beautiful. And so mm. I think being able to be aware of those responsibilities and listen to your people, but also kind of, you know, be aware of your leadership and, you know, the way in which the church organization and community is, is evolving allows you a little bit less pressure on every four set of songs, you know, or however you do your worship yeah. sets. I think we can get really like centered on, you know, the best possible performance on Sunday, but that's, I think maybe selling it short. And um, my encouragement would be to explore, you know, the wider, the wider sense of worship leadership and what it means yeah. to um, be in this conversation with the community um, and, you know, drawing their their attention to what God is doing in their midst. Thanks, Tanya. That's a great insight. And I think one, too, that at least from my perspective, sounds like it's also a testimonial, um, you know, something that, that <laughs> yeah, has come out yeah. of your own experience uh, in a particular community doing this kind of particular work. And also it sounds like being um, affirmed and encouraged and supported as you've taken a journey into other spaces that are perhaps worship adjacent, uh, you know, or the actual sort of worship service adjacent, um, training other worship yeah. leaders and doing this scholarship that's able to speak back into the life of that community that you for a season also served as a worship leader, right? Like that, that, that dynamic and the conversation that you invite us into in the book, I think is, it's also beautiful to hear you talk about it as, um, you know, a personal thing, um, in addition to, to sort of an academic, uh, yeah, an academic mode. I guess hopefully, you know, I, I hope people pick up the Hillsong book and that they, you know, cause I realize that every reader is going to be in a different kind of place. We realized, you know, this is a conversation that, you know, these conversations are indicative of these really wide responses to Hillsong. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, that's extraordinarily, I mean, it's confronting for me as a member of the original congregation. Like, why do you even know we <laughs> <laughs> but, but like it's also and like really, enough I mean, nerds who like unnaturally have followed you know like every bit of the history and like are reading you know your mphil or whatever right <laughs> no no yeah i mean that and that's why i mean and sometimes on twitter i i just get really like taken aback at times like i'm like wow that we could be so many things simultaneously at once to so many people it's just really a lot um but you know i realize that people do pick up the book from where they are and i may not have a window into that mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i think that that actually ability to be able to join the conversation mm -hmm. and to be able to have unique perspectives but also to be able to talk about um you know, how the global church engages and, and what the local contributes to that conversation and how those things into play and all of those things. So I hope it is a bit like a dinner party and, you know, the reader gets a seat to that and their voice at some point will also be illuminated. Um, it, it's an evolving one. We've talked about, you know, potentially doing it again. Um, and I think we might wait on that for a little while, but I, you know, my hope is that those conversations evolve and that, you know, we can actually get, new conversation partners mm -hmm. to the table to, um, yeah, talk about something that I love, you know, the church, the local church, the global church, um, 
it's it's a incredibly important conversation so yeah i guess you know in that sense i hope that people feel included and invited thanks for joining us on conversations on contemporary worship we would like to thank the calvin institute of christian worship for funding this project and the divinity school at duke university for providing support if you enjoyed our conversation you can find out more at sites duke.edu backslash contemporary worship check there for additional content including new podcast episodes and supplemental resources that you can use in your classrooms and with your teams and with your congregations stay tuned for more episodes where we will continue this conversation see you next time